everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Entrepreneur Rx. I hope you had a great holiday and uh, stayed safe. COVID is raging out there, as you know. I spent a lot of a lot of the holidays in the emergency department, and can say firsthand, it's back. I never really left. And it, it's interesting. But putting all that aside, I've got a really cool guest today. Her name is Kate Ladon. Kate and I first became acquainted when she helped me on branding for a book I wrote, this book, The Entrepreneur's Rx. And she was totally amazing. And as we talked about it, I thought, gosh, for those of us out starting businesses, brand and branding is essential. And I've literally found what I consider the nation's number one expert in this. Kate, welcome. John, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and happy to talk to your audience. Thanks. Well, this, you know, it's funny. Branding's not something I knew a lot about. It was kind of an afterthought to me, and it's probably the exact wrong way to do it. And I know you've branded startups before. So before we get there, give folks a little bit about your background so they know to whom the, to whom they're listening to. Sure. So my name is Kate Lazan. I run Brandwise Media. We do personal branding and social network building for business authors. So of course, that's how we know John. But before that, I was a branding consultant for startups. So started on the corporate branding side. And I had worked with a financial company who were really on a tear doing a ton of acquisitions around 2008. And we had to start swallowing up portfolio companies, merging them into the parent brand. And because I can't sit still, much like John, I'm always having like five different projects and businesses going on. I would leave my day job and I would go home and start branding small businesses at the time I was in Baltimore, Maryland, in the Baltimore area, and then startups. And what I realized was it was so much easier to get very clear on who your brand is for and who that audience is, build up that audience and then serve them products and a brand because you're going to reach profitability so much faster. And so we did that for a number of firms and we zigged and zagged and got into book marketing, which I'll talk a little bit about that journey. But there's a lot of checkpoints in the way that I think, John, are probably translatable to your audience. Totally. So quite a while ago, I reached out to Ryan Holiday, who is one of my favorite authors. After I read his book, Obstacles the Way, and I said, listen, you know, I've written, I don't know, at that point, six or seven books, and they, you know, they were not flying off the shelves. And he said, John, you're doing it all wrong. Build the audience, write the book. You're writing the book, then trying to build the audience. He goes, you're doing it logically, but definitely backwards, which is basically what you just said. That's right. I think a lot of people think when you're branding a company, and I give keynotes on this, a lot, a lot throughout the year. And I always start with the saying that branding is to serve nothing more, nothing less. I think a lot of people think our brand is all about us and features and benefits and unique selling proposition. And there's a time and a place for all of that. And yet, if you don't start in a reverse standpoint of who am I serving? What does that person look like? What are their challenges? Who is the hero I'm trying to help through their journey? you're not going to see brand growth as quickly as you can. And this was a lesson I learned not only in helping other companies establish their brand, but when I developed my first product. So I was doing brand consulting and I was sharing with people how to build up their corporate brand and personal brand. And somebody said to me, Hey, you know, what you're doing is really translatable for an online course. 
And I thought, Hmm, that sounds interesting. And at the time I probably had about 5,000 followers on LinkedIn and a pretty small email list, like 2000 people, but I was serving them up regular content. And I was very curious to do research on what was bothering them. And so I had this kind of baked in audience of about six to 7,000 people. And I just sent out a message and said, you know, I've been following a lot of you. I've been learning more about what you're challenging or what your challenges are. And I have this idea. I'm going to do six weeks of live LinkedIn coaching. Who would be interested? And John, seven people replied back and said, I'm in, here's my credit card. Let's go. And that's when I really realized the power of practicing what I was preaching, which is because I was building and researching that audience, I didn't even have the product yet. I just had a product concept and I got it proved and validated through seven beta testers who were willing to pay through their wallet. And so I've experienced it myself and I've experienced it with, you know, a number of businesses that we did their brand with get the audience down first, get so laser focused on who your business is for to the point where you may feel like you're leaving money on the table. Like, Oh, if I only serve this demographic, I'm going to leave money on the table. That's probably when you've defined it enough because you're, you're going to be open for other business, but you do want to be clear in who it is you're serving. So it's basically like you, you, you basically did your minimum viable product. You did your MVP with those seven beta users who that you tested it out on. And something else you said really was struck me. It's, you know, what I tell entrepreneurs all the time, it's, what is the solution? What's the problem to which you found a solution for you is who's the hero you're trying to help on their journey through your brand? Is that summarize it? Absolutely. Who is the hero and what are they struggling with? And I can tell you between building out products like online courses and services, we're an agency. It is always just go back to the client and figure out what they want. Go back to the client and figure out what they want and then agilely build that. And so we're probably on I mean, goodness, we worked together for your book launch about a year ago from then. And now we're probably on iteration number 20 of how our agency looks, because we're always going back to, as you said, the problem. And as you said, that we look at it as like our hero and their challenges. Right. Okay. So since this is about entrepreneurs and I I read somewhere that you read the book, The Alchemist, uh, (laughs) which I love. And then after you read that cover to cover, you said, okay, I'm following my heart, follow my passion. What was it about that book that all of a sudden sprung you into action? Not that you needed much springing, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm a type A, so I actually have the opposite problem. I can never sit still, which is, you know, something I unpack with my therapist at relevant points in my <laughs> life. But I will say, you know, it's funny, you read books or hear things in your life And sometimes it's the message and most times it's the timing. And I feel like when timing intersects with the right message, that's when the magic happens. So the alchemist is something where if I read it, I don't know when I was 22, as opposed to when I was 26, which is when I started my first business, I probably would have enjoyed it for the parable that it is, but it wouldn't have ricocheted my life like it did. When I read it, I just want to give the background to everybody so you can thoroughly appreciate the reason to jump if that is where you are. I was working with a financial firm compared to my other colleagues and peers who graduated at the same time I did, which was in a financial downturn, you know, right after 2008, I was making extraordinary money. And I had this little side business and my CEO, who was also my boss, brought me into his office and said, you know, we're getting ready to go through our next round of funding 
and we see something in you. And so we want to offer you equity in the company. It was like, you know, if we did an IPO, I'd have stocks, they'd vest all of this really fun talk. I give that background because the papers were handed to me to review. And then it was Memorial Day weekend. And I read the book, The Alchemist, cover to cover that Friday, ended on Monday. And on Tuesday, I went in and I said, not only can I accept this offer, I'm actually going to leave and start my own business. Because when I read that book and I was staring at those papers, I felt like the hero of that story who was really faced with, do I want to stay in a comfortable life without any adventure? I might get the crap kicked out of me if I take this adventure or do I stay here and live an okay known existence? And to me, I would have paid the same amount of money that that company was offering me to go on that adventure and get the crap kicked out of me, then stay where I was and feel like my soul was kind of getting crushed every single day. And so it was totally the right book, right time. It was like the the message I needed because everybody else, and I'm sure all of you hear this, if you're an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur, everybody else in my life was saying, you are batshit crazy to do this when you have this amount of money on the table. And I was, and it's been great. I, I would never change a second of any of it. You know, it's funny because I didn't know you then, obviously, but, but had I known you, I would have said, oh no, if this is what your heart's saying, you've got to follow it. So I, I totally identify with that. There was a long time ago I'd worked, I, I was definitely well overtired and I was kind of just getting beat up in emergency medicine. I read this book called Surfing the Himalayas mm. and it's about Buddhism and meditation. And I woke up one day and like a light bulb went out of my head and I was back. I mean, I was back. A couple of years ago, I picked up this book. I flipped through it, read some again. I have no idea what the hell it meant. I have no idea what I got out of that book. But at that point in my life, there was some spark and I'm like, you know, just like, baby, I'm back. And that was it. Yes. You know, the book that I had that experience with in an opposite thing was Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. The first time I read it, I was like, this is way over my head. I don't know. I'm not there yet. And then a couple of years after that, I picked it back up, read it and was like, this is remarkable. And it was crazy because the same exact words, but your experience, your time, whatever events are in your life, you're just in a different position. You receive these things differently, which is why I always like to go back and listen to things or read things, you know, two, three times. Yeah, no, totally me too. All right. So, I mean, I could, I could have this conversation with you for hours, obviously, but okay. So I'm starting the business. I got this great idea and I want to develop my brand. So one thing I would encourage people to do is and we'll have you in the show notes and all the links so they can kind of check out your educational materials. So I've looked at them and they're, 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 I wish I would have looked at them years ago. So what advice do you have? Somebody has this great idea. They're coming out with their MVP. They need to start branding. Go. What do you tell them? Yes. So as we already shared, when you're developing your MVP, do not do it in a vacuum. Agilely build it with your community. Where do I get that community? Great question. I went online. You know, I started to share about my journey as an entrepreneur, even the fumbling blocks and my thoughts around it and built that on social media. And then I would just ask people for their time. You know, social is a really great way to get connected to people. And there's also Reddit threads. There's Quora. I mean, there's a ton of areas and platforms where you can just do community research to more or less get formal and informal focus groups. But once you do that, you really need to start niching down on who it is that is the perfect person to receive the solution 
that you're presenting so you can understand their challenges. So that's number one. We have a perfect client avatar. I have their face on my wall right here. You all can't see this as a podcast, but they're up there. And there is demographics, psychographics, their challenges, where they're let down from our competition, you know, what they really want, what their business looks like, how many kids they have. I mean, we wrote a full-on like novel about this person. So we're very clear on who they are. After that, the key thing that made the difference for me in scaling, not only my company, but truly my team and my partners was figuring out what our corporate values were. And I think a lot of people look at corporate values as, you know, touchy feely, light work, whatever, whatever. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, we've doubled year over year over year. The reason that we've done that is because we have the right team. And the reason we have the right team is because we're so clear on the DNA makeup of those values and who will and will not be the right person for the right seat in our organization. John, I don't know. Was that your experience too? I feel like you're shaking your head. (laughs) You're nodding. Totally. Totally. It's, you know, it's an old saying culturally strategy for breakfast and you left over and I've, you know, I've had some large companies and, you know, the few times, that's not true. The times I've left the wrong person on the bus, it's, I've always paid for it dearly. And and the company's always suffered. Our customers have always suffered. And so now I'm, I'd rather have a position unfilled than to let somebody on the bus who's not the perfect candidate for it. And yeah, I mean, we, I mean, down to, we give promotions based on culture and value fit. We do a core value shout out every day. We shout out our clients for core values. We find our best clients share our core values. I mean, it is truly the drumbeat of the organization. And we nailed that down before we even nailed down our vision. The other thing I would say about that, speaking of, you know, those things are usually bundled up in the same breath when you're talking about branding vision, mission values, right? We always hear them as like the three, the three nights that come in when you're doing your branding values were first and foremost. And I recommend them be first and foremost because they already exist, whether you realize it or not. And my suggestion is to look at your A players and figure out what are the qualities they share or who would your ideal A players be and what are the qualities they share and then start there because values will also shape your vision and your mission. When you're speaking about vision and mission, what we did for our company, and John, I think you're familiar with this, is we run on EOS, the Entrepreneur Operating System. For those of you who haven't read Traction, Retraction, it's it'll save you a ton of headaches. It just boils it down into like a six component core operating system for the business. Having said that, when you go through Traction EOS, they'll have you come up with your 10-year plan, a three-year plan, a one-year plan, and then break that down on 90 days. I say that in the breath of vision because your vision is like your 10-year plan. Close your eyes, fast forward. What's materialized when this solution has come to market, when you've built the team? How are you quantifying that? What does it look like? And so that starts to shape your vision, which is simply what does the world look like if you succeed at this? And then your mission is really your core purpose for doing business. Once you flesh out those, the next thing I would say is get very clear on your unique selling proposition. And a lot of times people present your unique selling proposition as the feature or benefit that makes a seller greater than, or, you know, competitive with their competition. And I just roll my eyes because for us, we, we boil it down as this. USP or unique selling proposition is really just short for understanding someone's problem and articulating it back to them. Because as we were sharing earlier, 
if you understand your customer's problem better than anybody else, you are 90% of the way there. They don't actually really care about your solution because they're so absorbed in their problem. They are not in a position most times to understand your solution until they experience it. They can only empathize with their problem. So if you become the most adept and you know, facile and fluent in stating that problem to them and then putting your solution from the lens of that problem, you've got really great branding bases covered. And then your marketing strategy will naturally flow off of that. So that's a mouthful. I'll pause there. <laughs> Kick it over to you. Oh, so, so, so that's awesome. So those, you know, those are, I think, steps one, two, and three on how to get the ball rolling. And, and I love that you start with values. And I love the fact you start with, you know, who are my A players or what do I want my A players to look like? What values do they espouse that we are not going to cut corners on or accept anything in the gray? And, you know, for those out there, this is my 31st year of doing this. And I will just tell you every time I have, and I have, it's always come back to bite me. Even if in the short term, it sounds good and feels good, it's always bit me. And so if you can compromise on a lot of things, you can't compromise on your values because it'll bite yeah, you. Yeah, and down for us, like we, we call it right person, right seat. If we have a right person, no problem. I'll find a seat for you. The seat may not be there, but it will be there. I'd rather, you know, someone in my entrepreneur mastermind group up here in New York said, we have a a motto at our law firm and that's ABH always be hiring. Like if I see someone and you are value alignment and you are sharp, I'm snapping you up. Even if I don't have a position. Yeah, I do the same thing. I will find a spot for them. You can, you can train the right person and do almost anything. That's right. But you get out a brilliant person and they don't fit that culture grid. They'll never fit the culture grid. Oh yeah. And then they'll skunk your culture, which is, I mean, like they just, you can feel it immediately. Other people start to get, you know, not happy and it really does not play out well for anybody involved. Even the person, it doesn't. I've never heard the phrase skunk your culture, but I really like that phrase. I'm going to have to steal it from you. You know where I got it from? I have some friends that work for Shake Shack and Shake Shack even though they're publicly traded is very much like a, I'm not going to say a startup, but like they have a great culture. We all could probably see that externally. And they use that saying like, don't skunk, which means basically you're coming in, you're spraying your negativity, you're ruining it for others. Like you're skunking the culture. And I heard that. And I just like you, I latched onto it. I was like, Oh no skunking allowed. (laughs) Oh, I love that. So, so speaking of skunking, how has the pandemic influenced your business much? Are you finding people diving deeper into the branding message and their values? It seems like they should and would be. Yes. I think a lot of us pre-pandemic were reliant upon tried and true, yet maybe comfortable and not as, I'm not going to say innovative because I truly miss networking and, and trade shows and being with humans. I'm an extrovert's extrovert. I, you know, lost my my mind at certain points in this pandemic, especially in New York, you know, you're in very small square footages. And the reason you move here is to just be amongst people. Having said that the pandemic, and I say this with great trepidation because in no way do I want to seem not sensitive, how difficult it's been, because I have a number of entrepreneur friends. This, this is not a been the case. And a number of friends who've just been so rocked by this. 
Having said that, the pandemic has really, I think, skyrocketed our business because many people realize that they weren't online and doing that critical brand work before and connecting with their audiences online, then they quickly need to, to get up to speed in doing so. I think the other thing the pandemic did as it relates to my very specific line of business is when the world shut down, a lot of people looked introspectively. And so we saw a number of books being crafted and a real reflection point and inflection point for business authors thinking, okay, well, what is business 4.0 look like? And I think you know, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, John, from where I'm sitting right now and I'm working with a number of authors, we do seem to be at a turning point of like the before and the after. And what I mean is we all know it's an employee's market right now. You know, labor is extremely competitive and in some cases very scarce as people are really thinking about what they want to do for a living. I forecast in the next couple of years I mean, remotes here, hybrids here, but things like four-day work weeks will start to get more normal as corporate well-being and employee well-being happen. It's been interesting to see how it's very much shifted culture, which is another reason I urge everybody listening to start with values because cultures and strong cultures survived this pandemic. Flimsy cultures did not, and that's where you're seeing talent bleed out. I totally agree. And in healthcare, you know, we, business I have, we staff a number of Native American facilities on on reservations across the country, and they were hit very hard by the pandemic. And so if you are, if, you know, if our culture was not them first, caring first, compassion first for both our our teammates, but also for our patients, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. And, And I think many of our competitors lost people in droves because, you know, the great resignation hit healthcare hard. You know, a lot of folks just said, you know, I'm out. And I think folks in New York definitely had a lot worse than the rest of the country. But it's, I mean, I worked in the ED yesterday and, and you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a shit show, but there's a lot of folks in there, a lot of patients, a lot of sickness, and some death. And you have to have a high degree of resolve day after day after day. And if you don't feel like your company has your back, is taking care of you, you're out. And so we really went to great pains to make sure our employees felt like they were part of the part of the culture, part of the team. And I think for the most part, God knows we're not perfect, but I think for the most part, it worked relatively well, even despite the harsh conditions within which they work. Absolutely. You know, I think we're really, again, another thing now is like that shifting of like more of the what was previously seen as soft skills now being these skills that are in demand, empathy, vulnerability. I mean, when you're looking at cultures that endured and companies that had talent that endured, I would assert that that's because they had leadership and management that were much higher on empathy and vulnerability than their competition. It sounds like you guys were a case study of that. Yeah, we've got some great people on our, our team who, who truly walk walk the talk. So, you know, you're what we'd call a multipreneur. You've had a number of businesses. How, how do you keep all the balls up in the air? I hire really great people and people who are smarter than me. And I think that that's probably cliched advice, like hire people that are smarter than you. And it's 100% true. There was a point in my life and still on a daily basis where I'm always, as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, for me, am I inserting myself way too much or way too little? And that's constantly my daily fight. Like, does the team think I'm, you know, out of the loop? Do they need more of me or do they, or am I getting in their way? Do they need less of me? 
And when you hire people who are smarter than you, who are always looking to even replace themselves because they want to grow, you'll find that most of the time that answer is, please get out of my way. I mean, give me structure and give me the resources to do it, but please, for the love of God, just get out of the way. And because of that, and because we have such a clear vision and values that allow people to make decisions like we would make decisions without us needing to micromanage all of that, I do have the capacity and the bandwidth to be able to have my eyes on multiple things and my energy in multiple things and know where that energy is best served. And so for me, I mean, we have an accountability chart. My role is big relationship, innovation, research and development, company culture. And I can always apply that to the different businesses I'm in while knowing that everything else there's not going to be balls dropped because they are assigned to somebody else who is great at those things. And so if you're seriously thinking about being a multipreneur and most entrepreneurs are, because again, we love to see opportunities and insert ourselves and and solutions into them. You, you just have, there was a point where I really thought I could build a seven figure business as a singular person. And I'm not saying it's not doable, but boy, is it certainly faster and more rewarding when you do it with a team? Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm smiling because I've literally had this discussion with myself today. Am I two in or two out and, uh, <laughs> and, and which way to go? And I tend to be the about as far from a micromanager as possible because I hate it. And you're right, you know, people are far better than I am at their jobs, so they don't need me mucking up everything. So I do fight that battle constantly. What would be the like, you know, the elevator pitch, biggest piece of advice you'd have, because most of our listeners are physicians who will, by definition, be multipreneurs. Now, maybe they'll be an employee with one shoe and an entrepreneur in the next, but they'll be, they'll be juggling. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for them? How do you keep sane? I'll start there. Yeah. I mean, goodness. I think, first of all, the, the mantra, I am not my business has served me well. You can very quickly get identified with that as a driving identity. And I don't have children, so I don't have like other roles that I can get absorbed into like, Oh, I am a mother. I am a this. Like it is so much of me from age 26. So like very relatively early on in my life has just been, I'm an entrepreneur. And so my worth is deduced from how well the business is doing. Problem with that is just like anything else in your life. If your worth is externally driven, it will fluctuate and you will have very high highs and you will have debilitatingly low lows if you put it all into that. And so I think the first thing is every day I try and meditate for 30 minutes. I move my body for at least 30 minutes and I have something outside of it, outside of the business to make sure that I know I am not just my business, which keeps me mentally, emotionally checked in, you know, in a great position to be able to perform. On top of that, I wish I would have told myself at 26, start thinking about structuring the business like you're going to sell it. And they always tell you, like, don't build the house to sell it because you might take shortcuts and you want to be simultaneously thinking about how am I going to sell this business and structure it and scale it so it can operate without me while also planning to run it for a hundred years. That's like the sweet spot is you want to mentally and emotionally be invested to run it for a hundred years because you want to build a company that's going to endure, but you want to structurally build it so that anybody else can step in and take it over for you. And I think that from starting as a consultant, 
I did not have that mentality. I only really got it in the last two or three years and business has completely changed with that level of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's really something that really struck me because you talked about an interesting dichotomy because you're right. You have to, I mean, I tell people, you've got to think of the exit when you start the business because if it's an unexable business, you're stuck, which may be and fine. You, and you've got be... another job and your boss is yeah. the crappy person ever because it's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're stuck with a loser for a boss. Oh, hello. Yeah. But, the, but the flip side of that is too, you need to build it with the thought is I need to put the structure in place, the foundation in order to, that this business will be self-sustaining long after I'm gone. And so then you can go down two paths. You can you can turn the business over, become a chairperson, and let someone else run it, which you know I've, I've done a couple times, or or sell it. And either one is great. But if you build it right from the foundation with the right values and the right branding, great, you're on the path. And and knock on wood, you set it up right that someone will want to buy it if that's what you want to be your exit. So it's a cool duality. The other thing, two things to that, you're absolutely right. I think we've explored this in a few different examples just in this conversation. Just getting comfortable with being an entrepreneur means existing as a duality. That's your first thing right there. Just get comfortable. You'll all, Am I in it too much? Am I in it too little? I'm building it to sell it. I'm building it to run for a hundred years. Sales and operations. I'm selling. Oh crap. Now I got to make sure the operations have the capacity to sell. You're always going to be kind of like this pendulum of a person. And I think the best entrepreneurs are people who are very comfortable knowing that that shift is, you can exist in two places at once. The other thing I would say about that, and now I just lost my thought on that other one, it may come back to me, but the, the big thing is, yes, being an entrepreneur means being very comfortable in duality and, and dichotomy. And I think some of us get anxious about that. But if you know that that's just to be expected, you're already one step ahead of, of, of beating that. Yeah, it's funny. It's, you know, I think as physicians, where most of us are very uncomfortable in the abstract and somewhat unknown, particularly emergency medicine, but most physicians, you operate and make sometimes life and death decisions with imperfect information. And that's just kind of how it is. And so as an entrepreneur, that suits you well, because you'll never have all the information you need. And oftentimes your decisions may not be the best decisions, may be the best decisions at the time, but they ultimately may not have been the right decisions. And you yes. better get comfortable. That's right. I think that you're absolutely right. That's why physicians do really well. I think that's why veteran business owners, I know so many successful business owners who were a part of our armed forces and the same thing, like I am in just a very uncomfortable situation and I got to make a choice and move forward with it. Right. Hey, how's your, uh, switching somebody, how's your neighborhood out there? It sounds like there's police going by every few minutes. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, the ambient sounds that'll make their way into the podcast. So I live in New York and it is <laughs> constant. It is, co- it is unrelenting. And it's just so funny because you say that and like, I didn't even process that that was happening outside until you get so from the white noise you allow yourself to get adapted to living in New York city is unlike you could sleep through anything. If you live here long enough. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty good. So, Kane, I really appreciate your time. So how can, because I will encourage all of you to listen to this, obviously, and then get online and, and contact Kate. You can do it through the Influence Academy. How can people learn more about you and how can people get signed up for the Influence Academy? Because I'm telling you, as a new business owner, 
I wish this was around back when I started because it literally, like Ryan Holiday told me, it would have changed quite a bit. Oh, thanks, John. So for the Influence Academy, that is our online course that really sets up that foundational branding and personal branding, the influence.academy, very straightforward. And then I am most active on LinkedIn. I'm on there all the time. If you look for me, Kate spelled interestingly, K-A-I-T, I'm sure you'll see it in the show notes. You can find me there too. Perfect. I really appreciate it, Kate. It's great, great reconnecting with you and great speaking with you. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.